Welcome to the Marketable Retail Podcast, Season 7. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. We have another one of our very popular Encore episodes, this one from late 2021, but really could not be more timely to reprise towards the end of 2023 the profitless prosperity of disruptor brands. It's interesting. Uh, I didn't really know this until we started going back to look at episodes for possible encores. But right about the time that we first broadcast this, many of these disruptor brands, so this is everybody from the digitally native vertical Mm -hmm. brands, the Alberts, Warby Parkers, Rent the Runways, to some of the companies that were basically online-only types, you know, Wayfair, et cetera. Yep. Most of these brands, at least the publicly traded ones, hit their peak valuations right about the time we did this episode. So I think part of our motivation for doing it in the first place was like, this seems pretty crazy, <laughs> these valuations, mm-hmm. particularly given the amount of money that many of them are losing. Since <laughs> then, we've seen a deterioration in the performance of many but some notable exceptions, which I'll get to mm-hmm. in just a minute. But I also want to just briefly mention, we've talked a few times in recent episodes that we're not going to do a formal recap or like mid-year review that we've done in the past couple of years of my 2023 predictions. Uh, but I did have a specific prediction around the disruptors, which I called the, this idea that there would be a disruptor reset. Yeah. And even though 2022 is a pretty rough year, uh, I believe we'd see further challenges here, you know, both in terms of the financial performance, but also things like bankruptcies, management changes, uh, rethinking of strategies. And that's, that's really started to, to play out. So in terms of financial performance, we have seen many of them lessen their losses. But for the most part, the ones that we talk about in the episode, as well as some we've touched on since then, continue to see pretty significant losses. And as I mentioned, we saw kind of peak valuations from many of these companies. So just a couple quick examples. Allbirds was $24 at the time this episode came out. It's now $1.33. Oh, yes. (laughs) We have to do the the wobbly unicorn. (laughs) Wobbly unicorn. Very wobbly. Yeah, actually, most... Most of these companies were all billion-dollar-plus valuations. Yeah. I think it's important for the audience or for us to talk about the fact that you know when you, when you look at a stock valuation, that's one metric. But it has pretty important implications for these startup organizations who are trying to say, come work for me because you'll sure. make money on the growth in the stock plan, right? So I'll pay you a bit less. And right. you'll make it on the upside. So when you drop from twenty four to a dollar thirty three, I mean, it has very important implications for the people who work there and their ability to hire people, right? Yeah, and you can really. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things, and I know we've mentioned this a couple of times, but when you look at the gap, not to get into too much accounting, but when you look at the gap net income, and then they do this thing to go to what they call adjusted EBITDA. In many cases, the big number they're backing out is the stock-based compensation. And you're absolutely right. That's a big number for most of these companies every quarter. And to the extent that the stock doesn't look like it's going to go up, yes, that's that's very significant. Also, in terms of borrowing money, in terms of if they need to raise additional venture capital, whatever it might be, these valuations are pretty important. So it's much easier for us to get visibility to that with the publicly traded companies. But of course, there's a lot of pretty sizable uh, disruptors like Untucket and Madison Reed and others that are not public. But uh, yep. so just a couple more quick examples: Stitch Fix twenty eight dollars to under four dollars. 
the real real $13 to about $2.50. Rent the runway, $15 to under $1.50. Thread up in the resale business, $20 to under $4. And Wayfair, you know, one of my favorite uh, companies to complain about, they have had a bit of a resurgence in the last year, but relative to November 2021, they're down about 70%. And Warby Parker, which is really one of the ones that is uh, still a unicorn and is OG, shown OG more, yeah, and shown more progress. Uh, they're still down quite, quite a lot. Uh, and then just really quickly, we've seen some bankruptcies boxed is one that happened more recently. We've seen some consolidations as, as predicted a uh, dormy getting purchased by Victoria's secret. Uh, Walmart has sold off bonobos and a couple of the other uh, acquisitions they made. Uh, we've Casper, seen management, you know, Casper, Casper, whatever happened to Casper, you know, Yep. Yeah, so you know, quite a few, and then um, one of the other things were management changes. So we've seen Matt Bear, who's the chief digital officer at Macy's, uh, recently joined uh, as the CEO of Stitch Fix, and then John Coral, who's mm-hmm. uh, been around uh, prior, previously at Neiman Marcus and Canadian Tire and a few other places, is now the CEO at the Real Real. So kind of the adults are the adults are in the room at a couple of these companies. So it's definitely been a challenging environment. So a lot of what we talk about in the episode uh, continue to be concerns and, and some of the predictions essentially we made have largely played out. So we could have called this the I told you so episode. But we decided <laughs> We're not like that. Not, no, no. To, yeah, not that's like I mean, that. that's that's a little bit tacky. But I will say in terms of uh, some balance is there are some success stories. They're just in the minority. Yeah. Uh, so these aren't the only ones, but on running, which is uh, Mm-hmm. Done a little bit more of a traditional kind of strategy with with uh, leading more with wholesale, but also having their own stores continues to perform really well. They just reported their quarterly earnings with great growth, great profitability. Hims, the sexual wellness brand, is now getting into other categories. Um, sometimes, you know, I joke that with Hims, there's nowhere to go but up. You know, particularly <laughs> if you use some of their products, uh, but they continue to show great growth. Uh, like 85% gross margin or something. Um, By the way, there's, yeah. a, there's, a, there's a late snare trap for you. Sorry, right? I should have, uh, you know, we should have blocked that out in, in rehearsal. And then a brand like Yeti, which oh, again yeah. is a Love little Yeti. bit more, doesn't usually get thrown into the digitally native vertical brands per se, I think because they pr- started like On did with a little bit more of a, of a wholesale, wholesale strategy yep. complemented by online and stores. And then Viore, we recently reprised the mm-hmm. Joe Kudla episode. Uh, so there definitely are folks that started around the same time and had a fair amount of funding, much like the brands we mentioned that are struggling that have found a way uh, to to make money and be on a really good trajectory. So that's, that's probably more than enough uh, updating uh, uh, before we get into <laughs> the heart of the episode. It's a, it's a fantastic um, discussion, though, because I think it's so relevant. And uh, A, we've done some content on it before, and I'm sure we'll be doing content on it again. So it, it kind of like not even just a midpoint, but it's a fascinating element to watch. Uh, so without further ado, and there has been much ado, let's get to our encore episode right now, The Profitless Prosperity of Disruptor Brands. You know, let's let's take it from the top. What in your mind? This disruption word came out. You're a yeah. disruptor. It used to be unicorn. Used to be whatever. What right. what in your mind makes makes a disruptor? And and who are these disruptors? Who are these disruptors that you speak of? Tell me a little <laughs> bit more how, how you're thinking about this. Well, some people may be familiar with with kind of this idea of you know the legacy 
brand and then the insurgent brand, you know, some brand that, that takes on the, I guess it's the David and Goliath, I guess would be the other cliche by finding uh, some sort of vulnerability in the big guys model. So they reinvent, you know, maybe they go after a particular weakness, some point of friction or, or um, nimble, you know? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of different ways that can play out the way it's played out in retail. uh, I think number one has been uh, leveraging, obviously the power of the internet uh, to go direct to consumer. So in some cases you've got the DNVBs, the digitally native vertical brands, which you know, started as online only. And we'll talk about the evolution about on that in a second, uh, but you know, tended yeah. to go after a particular product. So quip in toothbrushes, Warby Parker in eyeglasses, untuck it in menswear and so forth. So they, they take a particular category they go after some sort of product innovation. Uh, but the original premise was by going direct to the consumer, they can cut out a lot of the asset-intensive right. aspects of retail, physical stores, all this inventory, and have that direct relationship with the consumer, not be reliant on a middleman. There's other direct-to-consumer And they tend to be very vertical, right? I mean, if you think of Untucket, for example, yes. they basically have one value proposition. We sell shirts that look good untucked. I have a few. Uh, right. Very, you know, living up to their name. We sell this. We don't go yes. this way, right? Yeah. Ca- category or product focus and, and you know, in the technicality of the DNVBs, they're vertically integrated. In other words, they're their own brand and they design and control the manufacturing. Uh, now, you have other players that you could say were are, are disruptors in the retail space. Amazon, obviously, right? But Amazon, you know, is not a digitally native vertical brand. They don't own and manufacture. They're a multi-brand retailer, as is Wayfair. There are others, right? Yeah. So, uh, and then, you know, there are other kind of disruptive consumer brands, I guess, from Uber, uh, Airbnb, mm-hmm. uh, but more, I guess, in the center of retail would be, for example, the resale players, uh, Poshmark, Thread up those those guys yeah. uh, that are in the sharing economy, you know, bringing supply and demand together, uh, rent the runway. So there's a there's a slew of them, and these brands have attracted a tremendous amount of venture capital, and so they are disrupting the kind of normal or traditional structure of the retail industry by going to market in a different way and perhaps poking at a vulnerability yeah. or two of the of the legacy players. They also, and and this came out, I I remember I was sitting with a a bunch of uh, traditional mattress retailers, and they were a little frustrated by, by, they kind of had a sense for how big the business was, and they were frustrated that mattress, in this case, but other brands, were sucking up all the oxygen of attention, if not sales, like how much, they were like, you know, they're a bit of the mosquito in the tent, for sure. It's not fun when you're camping and have that mosquito in the tent. Um, but they're like, you know, it's really, we can't get a word in edgewise because all everybody wants to talk about is, you know, these brands. So that, that, that was, I felt that was problematic for a whole yeah. bunch of reasons from an attention perspective and a media perspective. I think there are a bunch of things there. I have a client that refers to some of these brands as mosquito brands. You know, they're small and annoying and you want to swat them away. Yeah. yeah. But I do think, yeah, they, well, there's a lot of things going on, you know, from a media perspective, they're, they're fun to write about you, right? Because we've got something yeah. new and cool, maybe have a really uh, charismatic founder or whatever. The venture capitalists are trying to hype it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of energy behind, behind promoting the story uh, and trying to get that next round of financing and get that consumer 
attention. But I think the thing that is that is disruptive to the to the whole cycle has been that many of these brands, of course, not only and Casper's a good example, or Warby Parker, you know, they have a strong value equation. You know, we are 10, 15, 20% less expensive than the competition. And they're also putting a tremendous amount of marketing uh, out into the industry to try to create their brands, but but drive that business very aggressive with discounting. So the combination of the lower prices and all this marketing puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the existing players. And I've, I've talked to clients I've worked with uh, and others about, well, you know, what do we do when we have this company coming in that is sucking up a lot of the attention that's, that's putting a lot of marketing out there that's pricing at uneconomic prices and starting to steal share from us. Do we try to swat them away like that mosquito or do we say, you know, they, these guys aren't for real and we'll, and we'll stick it out. But you know, if you're, if you're in the home furnishings business and you watch Wayfair go from nothing to whatever they are now, 10, 15, $20 billion, um, you know, they're, they're a big player. Some of these other players as we'll probably talk about a little bit, you know, they, Mm. they're definitely punching above their weight. Uh, they're not necessarily huge businesses at least yet. Yeah, it's it's interesting because on the ground, some of these businesses, because they all inevitably, interestingly, turn their minds to physical retail. You know, we'll get to that a little later. But they pay top dollar in the malls. They come in, mm-hmm. uh, they take, they take, take, they have the top dollars behind them for marketing. Yeah. They see it as a marketing tactic as much as anything. They go in the in the premium places, and and you know, as as you've been saying, as we see these. IPOs come out as we get more information. We start to get both the size of the business and the profit lists. And this is why this episode is profitless prosperity because they're growing, but they're, you know, they're coming back down to earth a little bit for some of them because the you know, basic unit economics yeah. still matters, right? Well, we'll see. You know, there has been a lot of speculation, and I'm guilty of a lot of it, that many of these brands that were private were were spending uh, you know, crazy amounts of money on marketing and building out all their infrastructure in many cases might not be pricing at a sustainable rate to, to grow rock, uh, you know, grow market share. And so they're like mm-hmm. this rocket ship in terms of sales, but what else is going yeah. on in, in the market? So as we start to see, and we've got, I think, you know, 12 or 15, something like that of these pretty significant, uh, DNVBs that are now public. Well, now we're getting to see what, what the picture looks like. Yeah. And at least in terms of current profitability, uh, most of them are continuing to lose a lot of money. Of course, the question is, uh, cause you know, Amazon lost money. Lots of companies have, Tesla loses money. There's plenty of companies that, that look right. to be enduring brands that have lost money for an extended period of time. So it's hard to really tease out how much of this is kind of the normal growth curve, uh, that will allow them to be these powerful brands versus basically, you know, kind of the emperor has no clothes that there's just a lot of hype yeah. around these. So I think it's, it's hard to tease out. You know, we had Dan McCarthy, um, back mm-hmm. with us a, mm-hmm. a few episodes ago to look at some of the unit economics. And I think some of that kind of analysis is very helpful to try to figure out what, what the long-term, yeah. uh, prospects look like. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty scary really to see. Uh, particularly some of these brands that, you know, Wayfair is 17, 18 years old, you know, so it's not like it's a new, new company. Some of these brands are yep. more than 10 years old. Um, so you would expect they would be maybe more on a glide path. COVID's on the one hand 
changed a lot. You would generally think for e-commerce driven brands that that would be a good thing for their business. But if you look at Warby Parker's numbers um, and some of these other companies, it, helped, it, it, helped, so it helps the Pelotons of the world. Yeah. And you know what I sometimes think about, so we should talk about Casper getting, you know, going private is, is, um, you know, eventually and a lot of these investors want their, their liquidation moment. You know, they want something to happen to these brands. Uh, in Canada, there was a mattress brand that was a competitor, Canadian competitor to Casper. It got bought by uh, Sleep Country, which is the biggest mattress uh, retailer in the country. So that's not a bad outcome in some ways for some of these brands to be kind of bought and folded in. Um, you know, everybody gets their money's worth at some rate. The question in my mind, and I don't know if either of us know the answer to this, is Casper the thin edge of the wedge? you know, the camel's nose in the tent, or is it an outlier? It got taken private for a way less valuation right. than it was prior. So is that a sign of things to come, or is that kind of an outlier and, you know, other businesses have more, are more solid and have a, a better future? Directing consumer brands are not new. Williams, Sonoma, Sir Latab, I mean, there's a whole host mm-hmm. of these mail-order catalog mm-hmm. businesses, basically, L.L. Bean, Land's End. I mean, these were direct-to-consumer vertically integrated, not digitally native, analog native, I guess, new acronym, that have been around forever. And guess what? They started direct-to-consumer online, but online back then was the catalog. And then, here's the crazy thing, they opened stores. When they opened stores, they discovered that their mail-order catalog business got better when they opened stores. And then when they things moved on, online more, they discovered that stores helped their online business. So all of this was very known 20 plus years ago. Uh, so it's really not, I mean, obviously a lot has changed, but the whole hmm. concept of direct-to-consumer and the vertically integrated brand um, is, is pretty common. Certainly many of these brands are going about it in a different way because they can pick their real estate today they are fundamentally mm-hmm. built on one platform, and so the, the omni-channel harmonized piece of it is easier for them. They don't necessarily have to break down the silos and fix fix things that, that have existed in the incumbent brands. But a lot of the model is very true. So to answer your question, I, I do think you know there's been a lot of reports that, that Casper has been a little bit of a mess in terms of, of operating. So some of this can be chalked up to execution. But I think the broader lesson... And when we look at some of these businesses is to ask the question, well, number one, how big is the addressable market really? Because many of these brands found that it was fairly easy to find like that perfect customer. But then, you know, and and those customers were basically finding them because they had a perfect value proposition for a certain amount of customers. These customers are using organic ways to find them. So that first 10, 20, 30 million dollars of revenue came pretty quickly. But then you get to the point where you have to go find customers. And when you're really trying to find customers, number one, it gets really expensive. Number two, you're typically trying to steal that customer away from somebody else. So like Bonobos, in their their second or third stage of growth, they're basically trying to get the Nordstrom customer, right? And Nordstrom knows who their customer is, and they're going to try to hold on to them. So it starts to become really expensive to, to grab that next level of customers, and or mm. you then decide, as many have, to go the wholesale route to try to expand, yeah. uh, which is you know not exactly direct to consumer, but that's a technicality. Or as we've seen, a lot of them are opening stores. And I think the hard thing to tell right now, except maybe you could argue for Warby Parker, 
is most of these brands are fairly early in their store opening cycle. And most of them open, you know, you mentioned this earlier, a lot of them open, they pay premium rents. They're in, you know, the kind of locations that are kind of a layup. Like if you have any kind of business, you open up next to the Apple store in Soho or you go into one, you know, it's not hard to figure out where those first 20, 30, 40 locations are. Like they're all go down to Austin. Like you can find, there's the Yeti store. There's the outdoor voice store. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that, that part is not too complicated, but plenty of brands that are really niche brands, they never get beyond 40 or 50 stores. Like nobody talks about Kiehl's, if you know that brand, you know, being 800 Mm. stores, right? I mean, people understand that it's got its niche, a very good niche. So I think it's, it's very hard to understand. I mean, all we know is that many of them have opened these stores and overall they're still losing money, but it's pretty hard Mm. to tie together how much of that is related to their store expansion how much of that is related to just fundamentally uh, pricing issues or overspending on marketing or the business, or the business yeah. model itself. I, you know, what, what I thought is interesting and, and to be fair, you know, we often kid about the whole Mark Andreessen, the you know, who needs stores, stores are gone. You know, it, one thing I think that has evolved over the past 10 years that I reflect on often is 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I, as a, as one of these brands could really take advantage of the platforms, whether it was Facebook or Google. And if you developed some expertise, you had direct marketers, you had direct response marketers, you really, in those early days, you could really have leverage and use those to drive your business quite successfully with a, you know, a ROAS is a very common measure, you know, return on ad spend. Yes. Now, you know, it's hard to, to find advantage for anybody of any size and so it feels like in a world 10 years ago, I don't need a store, but now I need stores because I can't gain advantage on Facebook. So I'm going to try and gain advantage by opening a store in a high mile street or in a, yeah. in a very prominent shopping mall. The, the, the luggage company away just opened up in Yorkdale here in Toronto. It's a beautiful store. It's really well done. I just, I just think that they like, like, listen, we, we, yeah, we'll do all the social media stuff that you'd expect us to, but it's hard to gain attention or leverage in the way we did even 10 years ago. Do you, do you, do you ever think about that as, as one of those kind of things that's changed in the overall macro environment that is pushing towards physicality? Well, I think, I think for certain types of brands, the physical store was inevitable. I think what, what Mark Andreessen mm-hmm. got, got wrong and the first, the first, you know, the investment premise behind a lot of these retailers was there was an underappreciation for the value that stores add. So in the case of mm. some of these brands, you know, they got to a certain point, but then they did. And I happen to have access to a couple or I've seen, uh, I can't say who it is, but I've seen information from a couple of these brands and pretty much they said, well, here are these interested consumers, but they want to go try it on or they want to go understand why does this sweater $150 or, or whatever. So, you know, there was a point where, in order to penetrate that, you know, to, get, to make the size, the total addressable market bigger, yeah. they had to have physical stores. That was the thing that was missing. And I think if you really understood the difference between online shopping, which is basically running errands, versus something that's seeking a solution, you just knew that what Mark Andreessen said had to be nonsense. So I think there was just an underappreciation or like this technology blindness to the value that physical stores could add. But the thing that you bring up, I think is very important as well because it was much easier 10 years ago 
to, to um, build a brand online. Uh, it just wasn't that costly. I remember I had a client about five, six years ago where I said to them, well, the good news is you're doing pretty well. The bad news is Facebook is going to figure this out. <laughs> And, right, and so I don't, I don't know enough about it right. to say, oh, you got six months, or you have two years, but there's just no way that, that Facebook right. and, you know, Instagram and Twitter didn't, didn't have much of an advertising model yeah. back then. So yeah. it was inevitable. Yeah, there's no way that there's no way I saw the same thing again. I didn't know enough to predict when, but it was, it was when, not if that they were going to say, Hey, all you guys riding for free off the bus. Yeah. Uh, I, I call it, I, I don't know. Maybe if I stole this. Out. Yeah, I don't know if I stole this from somebody else, um, but I call them like the marketing toll booth operators, right? It's like when you when eventually, <laughs> eventually you figured out like, well, where I want to go is on this road, and you own the toll booth. Well, it's like, well, how badly do you want to go? And right, and it, and basically you auction it off. And so I think the phenomenon. This is a little bit maybe inside baseball, and it's a little bit of Dan McCarthy's work. I think gets at this, but just to sort of picture it is. You know, if you can find that first batch of customers pretty easily, or they essentially find you, you've got really low cost of acquisition. The customers that love you the best tend to spend more, and they're probably not as price sensitive. So that's a beautiful customer lifetime value segment, right, or cohort. Then as you start to try to build the base more, you start to have to pay to find them and target them, and now you're competing with whoever is also competing with them. So your marketing Mm -hmm. costs start to go up. When you think about those additional cohorts you start to add, they're not the most perfect fit for your business model. So their total lifetime spending is likely to be lower, and they probably are more price sensitive. So the worst case scenario you have is your cost acquisition keeps going up, and the marginal value of the customers you're bringing in is going down. And essentially what I think has happened to Casper has happened at Wayfair, has happened at some of these other companies, is they're now realizing that, yes, the more we're spending more to bring them in, but the incremental value of the customers we're bringing in is not economic. So that has to be reset. The store investment conceivably does a few things. One, it it increases the, the total addressable market. It may bring down your acquisition cost. You're paying, you know, rent is sort of the new customer acquisition cost, and it's become a cliche, but that's that's, yep. that's yep. true. And in some categories, probably not away, but certainly in a lot of apparel categories, as we know, the return rates are really high online. So another big driver of opening stores is to try to get the return rates down. I've talked and written about kind of how this had to evolve. So I don't think any of this is tremendously unexpected. In fact, I the other day I posted on LinkedIn, you may have seen it, that I think COVID kind of pushed this reckoning down the road by about 18 months because so much shifted online and the cost of acquisition mm. came down. But now as it's starting to go back, cost of, of digital marketing is sky high again. Uh, it's, a, it's a different environment going, going forward. Yeah. So I think it's going to take us a little while to really sort out you know, I don't think Casper is necessarily the canary in the coal mine, but I think it, it speaks to some some issues, and the more quarters we get from from some of these brands that haven't been public too long, the more that mm. uh, file for IPOs, we'll, we'll just get a closer look, and it'll become a lot more clear what to look for. But we're, we're in this kind of little bubble where the recent results mm. are decent because of the move to e-commerce, and I think there's a lot of investors that just kind of have faith that will all work itself out. The last thing I was going to say, though, I would encourage people, if they care about this, 
to take a look at some of the established brands and what their numbers look like. Because I've been saying, I just can't get my head around these five, six, seven billion dollar valuations for some of these brands, given the size of the business and the trajectory of their losses. You can go out and look at a great former client, direct to consumer brand called Duluth Trading Company. Duluth Trading mm-hmm. Company has mm-hmm. been around for a while. They have, I think, 65 or 70 stores, vertically integrated brand. And, you know, they, I think they're operating EBITDA margins or something like 12, 13%. So here's a business that's, you know, six, $700 million, which is way bigger than Allbirds. Yeah. You know, considerably bigger than Warby Parker and has 60, 70 stores like Untuck It, Bonobos and others do, or, and some of them are moving to that number. And, you know, they're, they're cranking out pretty good money. Now, I don't think anybody thinks they're a hyper growth story at this point. So, right. you know, they're not apples to apples, but I think you can look at, at American Eagle. You can look at some other companies that are essentially vertically integrated direct to consumer brands and have a frame of reference and ask yourself, well, if, if the loot trading company is valued much less than all birds, you know, mm. is, is, the loot trading company How undervalued yeah. or is, is there uh, just a miss? Because uh, there's something about, you know, I'm in the universe, right? Kind of right. Thing, I mean, yeah. it just, obviously all birds and these other companies rent the runway, whatever, pick your favorite one. They're all, you know, early in the maturity curve, but you know, you have to be able to work your way to being a fairly sizable business with decent EBITDA margins, you know, in the not too distant future or the, you know, the discounted cash flow. not to get into financial theory here, but like it, it doesn't, something's one of those numbers has got to be wrong. Uh, so, but, but it, but it's, you know, it's, as, well, put. As, it's well, put. but it's typical with, you know, these, and you've said it many times, these, these stocks are valued on the story and you know, the way the stock market works uh, you know, the venture capitalists want to IPO it and, you know, there's some people that just will buy any super yeah. sexy stock. And so it's yeah. the greater fool theory, I guess, is is what you call it. <laughs> or they're hoping, you know, yeah. Unilever bought, uh, they buy Dollar Shave Club at what That's now right. looks like to be a crazy price. Walmart bought Jet at a really crazy price and Bonobos and some others. So, yeah. you know, you just, you don't want to be the one left holding the bag. <laughs> I yeah. Or, you don't, it, or it when the music like stops or whatever. It, it is a game of musical chairs, and it's funny. I got to put my hand up. I bought Rivian stock last week. Uh, you know, there's a stock that came out IPO more valuable than Ford, and they haven't made a truck yet, basically, <laughs> right. uh, in, in the market. So, but I bought the stock, and you know what? It's actually doing okay. It's a beautiful truck, by the way. Uh, talk about a great story. And and you know, I wanted to end this episode on a positive note because I think out of all this, out of these brands, some may get taken out some may not survive uh ones like warby parker may consolidate they may have the strength to bring in several like there's a lot of paths to success for many of these brands and and what i love about it listen i love talking about them i think they're doing interesting things sometimes the business model looks a bit shaky sometimes i just don't i I don't get it and sometimes i'm you know i'm wrong and and somebody sees a lot of great things in them and sometimes they don't succeed but it is you know, I, we wish, I wish them all the best. I, I'm, I find it fascinating and um, one way, shape or another. And, and, uh, I think, I think there's hope for some of these brands in one way, shape or another. So I like to remain optimistic about some of these oh, yeah. uh, brands. A- and, and absolutely. Yeah. Some, some will, will absolutely turn out to be, to be great brands. I mean, the only thing that really I find a little bit sad is when 
the venture capitalists or the, you know, the investor world supports these brands to kind of a crazy degree and it puts yeah. unfair pressure on retailers, big and small to compete because yep. basically the venture capitalists are subsidizing this crazy amount right. of marketing. And in many cases, these, these, you know, unsustainable yeah. pricing prices. Un- so it unlevels the playing, it unlevels right. the playing field basically because these, as these brands pay outsized amounts for the technology they're buying, for the people that they're yes. hiring, for the stores that they're leasing, for the on and on and on. So I think it is there is a distortion element right. to it that is that is net negative. I think to yeah. the industry in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. But the flip, but I do think the flip side of that is that these disruptor brands, you know, they are they make hopefully some of the legacy brands stronger because they they show new and different ways to do business, you know, whether that's more asset light model, you know, more showroom model or whatever. Um, Most of them to me are great depictions of, of what I call harmonized retail, right? They didn't, they build it as one brand in many channels, not omni-channel, multi-channel that you have to integrate and deal with all these silos. Um, They very much, most of them are very uh, customer data driven. So I think there's a ton to be learned for from retailers, big and small, but say more traditional type of retailers by by looking at what these companies do to be customer centric, to really zoom in on that customer journey, to think about go to market strategies in a really in a really different way, and yeah. you know that brings great value to the consumer for sure, and in many cases I think that just sharpens the saw for for other retailers. So I'm all in favor of more, more innovation. Uh, but I do think at some point, you know, you're not really prosperous, uh, if you don't make any money. Great way to wrap. Listen, this has been a great discussion. Uh, and I think we'll come back to this as things evolve over the years, but, uh, really nailed it. I think in terms of this, trying to understand their role in this big retail ecosystem that you and I love. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great episodes, including our recent interview with Carrie Baker, President, Canada Goose. And be sure to drop us that five-star review where you listen to your podcast. It really helps us spread the word. And I'm Steve Dennis, strategy and innovation consultant, keynote speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption. You can learn more about me at stephenpdennis.com and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker and producer and host of a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn more about me on LinkedIn. Safe travels, everyone.